Good morning, St. Paul's. So uh, hopefully you heard by now that Sarah and I got our test results back. Uh, remember last week, I couldn't be with you in person because we were waiting on test results after we both got sick with something. Uh, we did get our test results back on Monday and we both tested negative for COVID. So uh, that was a relief. Um, and we're both back to feeling normal now. So thank you for your uh, messages of support and your prayers. So you might be wondering, well, then why are you speaking on video again? Well, I promise it's not because we're hypochondriacs. Uh, most of you know that Sarah is a in-home therapist with community health resources, uh, which means she is sometimes required to meet with people in their homes. And we found out on Thursday that one of the clients that she saw on Monday uh, tested positive for COVID this week. So she was with a client who was likely contagious uh, early this week. And uh, so once again, uh, we have to quarantine. Uh, the earliest that Sarah was able to get a test was on Saturday. And so she has been tested, uh, but we won't know until Monday or Tuesday whether or not uh, she's positive. And so once again, we are waiting and quarantining and uh, hoping that we don't have COVID. So once again, I appreciate your prayers and support. But good news is we both feel fine uh, so far. So hopefully uh, she didn't get it. So we're going to continue in Revelation today. But before we do that, I just want to say something really briefly about the election. Uh, I am going to say essentially the same thing that I said four years ago after the election. So you know that this is going to be nonpartisan. Whether you are celebrating the results of the election or mourning the results of the election or questioning the results of the election, whatever the case, it is important for us to remember that nothing has changed about our calling. As followers of Christ, we are called to always be becoming more like Jesus, right? We are called to represent him to the world around us. We are called to be the kind of people who wash feet, the kind of people who humbly serve those around us. We're called to be the kind of people who trust in Christ rather than in the kings or kingdoms of this world. We're called to be the kind of people who embody 1 Corinthians 13, like we talked about last week, the kind of people who believe that without love for our neighbors, we have nothing, even if we disagree with our neighbor on many things. That's what we have been called to do during Donald Trump's presidency. Assuming Joe Biden becomes president, that is what we will be called to do under his presidency, and it's what we'll be called to do whoever is president after that. So whether you are happy or sad, whatever the case, keep things in perspective. Our calling has not changed, okay? And part of that calling, of course, is to study and learn from the scriptures. So let's do that. Uh, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open to where we left off two weeks ago in Revelation 14, starting in verse 6. 
Revelation 14, starting in verse 6. Um, as you make your way, your way there, I will pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this uh, opportunity to look at your word together. And uh, we just pray that you would speak to us through it right now, that you would help us to focus our attention on these words. And uh, we just invite you to work in our, in our hearts and minds right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. All right, now, let's remember, Revelation is a series of visions that the prophet John experienced while living in the Roman Empire in the first century. And these visions were recorded and sent out to real churches in the first century. And of course, the visions were intended to be relevant and meaningful for those first century Christians. Now, they have meaning and significance for us today too, but if we really want to appreciate their significance today, we need to first try to understand what their significance would have been for Christians living in the Roman Empire in the first century. And one of the words used in this vision that would be especially significant is a word that we've all probably heard many, many times, gospel. Uh, John writes that he sees an angel who has an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. And it's uh, not just uh, one small group of people who live on the earth, but all people, right? Every nation, every tribe, uh, language and people. Now, we hear that word gospel today, and we tend to think of the basic message that Jesus Christ died uh, for the sins of the world, and that he rose from the dead, and that through faith in him, we can also have victory over sin and death. And there's nothing wrong with thinking that. I mean, that message really is at the core of our faith. And when you think gospel, it's appropriate to think that. But when first century Christians heard that word gospel, it had a slightly different connotation. 
Fundamentally, gospel means good news or news that brings joy. But it was a word that was used in a very specific context in the ancient world. Um, back in those days, if you had a gospel to share, it, it wasn't just because you, know, you got a good deal buying a horse or if you had an especially uh, abundant crop. The word gospel was used for political proclamations. Like in 490 BC, when Greece defeated Persia in battle, the news about that victory was called a gospel, an announcement of good news. And the person who carried that news, that news about the victory was called an evangelist, the bearer of the good news. And if you know the story about that battle between Greece and Persia, you know that the evangelist had to run very far to deliver the news about that victory. And as the legend goes, when he arrived, he collapsed and died. And the distance he had gone was 26.2 miles, which is the length that uh, is where we get the idea of a marathon from, 26.2 miles. So the first marathon runner was an evangelist carrying a gospel, and that gospel was this news of military victory for Greece. It was a political proclamation. Uh, also, not long before Jesus was born in 6 BC, a gospel was proclaimed throughout the Roman world, and it was the gospel of Caesar. It was the good news that the Roman emperor was Lord and that his reign would bring peace to all people. So when John says that he sees an angel who has an eternal gospel, that's a subversive political statement. He's saying that Caesar's gospel is not the real gospel. The gospel of the Roman Empire, the gospel that says that Caesar is Lord and through his reign, peace is going to come to the whole earth. That gospel, that's a false gospel. It's a fleeting gospel. The true gospel, the eternal gospel, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that was something that Christians in the first century really needed to hear because Caesar seemed pretty powerful to them. The Roman Empire was enormous. You could never traverse the whole thing. It was so, so big. And everyone in it was expected to recognize the Caesar as a god. But Revelation is saying, no, no, okay, Caesar isn't really the one in charge. Caesar isn't really the one who can bring peace on earth. Caesar is human. Caesar is temporary. But Jesus Christ is eternal, and he is the true king and the true source of peace. Now, first century Christians needed to hear that, and I think that we really need to hear that too. Whether we are happy or sad about the election, we have to remember that no president can bring peace on earth. No presidential election results are the eternal gospel. And no worldly leader is Lord, right? The eternal gospel, the true gospel, is that Jesus is the true king. Now, when we look at the world around us right now, it might not appear that Jesus is Lord. Right? A lot of things that happen seem to go against 
God's will. And the same thing was true in the first century, especially in the first century. Christians in the Roman Empire experienced real persecution. Not going along with emperor worship could have serious consequences. Right? We've talked about this. It could mean financial ruin. It could mean going to prison. And in some extreme cases, it could even mean death. And in that environment, I'm sure it was tempting to believe that Caesar really was Lord. But Revelation declares, no, however it may seem, no, no matter how broken the world is, Jesus really is Lord. Kingdoms rise and fall. The Roman Empire is gone, but Jesus remains. And one day he will establish an everlasting kingdom where things are finally made right. Now, this news that Jesus is Lord, this truly is a gospel. This truly is good news because it means that the one who is ultimately in control of the universe is good, truly good. It means that the true king of all is not someone like Caesar. The true king is someone who washes feet. The true king is someone who willingly dies on a cross to save sinners. The true king is someone who, while dying on that cross, actually prays for the people who are crucifying him and says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The true king of the universe is not a cruel, authoritarian, narcissistic control freak, but someone who is loving and gracious and merciful and sacrificial. That's good news. That is a a gospel proclamation that is truly a source of joy. But this good news does have a bad news angle to it, right? Because if Jesus is Lord, if he is the true king of the universe, then at some point, if we're not willing to submit to the true king, we're going to find ourselves at odds with ultimate reality. We're going to find ourselves raging against the inevitable, raging against inescapable truth. And if we persist in that, that persistence will eventually destroy us. So here's a way of thinking about this. It is a fact that if your body falls from a high enough height without anything to break your fall or slow you down, you will crash into the ground and die, right? When you crash in the ground, boom, you're dead. Certain amount of force striking your body will kill it. That is a fact. And if you jump out of a plane without a parachute, eventually that fact is going to assert itself, right? And the gospel is the fact that Jesus is Lord of the universe. And if we refuse to accept that, eventually that reality will assert itself. We will crash into that reality. And if we're not willing to accept it, it's going to hurt. And that's why the angel's proclamation of the eternal gospel comes with this warning of judgment, right? Uh, he says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. 
And then the second angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, why is the angel talking about Babylon? You might be wondering. Uh, Babylon in the Old Testament was an evil empire. It was an empire that did not worship God or respect God's law. And so here, Babylon is being used uh, as a symbol for any evil empire, specifically for the Roman Empire. It's, it's probably a coded way of saying Rome. And when we hear Babylon today, we should think of any evil empire uh, or really any uh, system where the spirit of empire it has taken control. And uh, hopefully you remember, I, I tried to define what I mean by this spirit of empire. Um, the spirit of empire is the spirit that values three things supremely. Loyalty to the empire, military power, and money. And I'll repeat what I said a few weeks ago. There is not anything inherently evil about uh, these three things. But when these three things become supreme values with no values that transcend them to guide them, then the devil works through them and they become very dangerous. Uh, if loyalty to the empire, to your country is more important to you than doing what's right, then you're gonna support your country no matter what they do. You will never be able to, to critique uh, your country. Uh, if military power is more important to you than anything, then you're going to bow down to whoever has the most powerful bombs and the biggest army, rather than whoever is speaking the truth and seeking to do what is right. Uh, and if you value money more than what's right, you will commit all kinds of injustice in the pursuit of profit. And the spirit of empire works to create systems, governments, nations, where those three things are the supreme values and the devil works through that. And in this passage, the angel is declaring that this spirit of empire is doomed, right? Babylon will fall, Rome will fall. And whatever form the spirit of empire takes in our day and age will eventually fall. If you are caught up in the spirit of empire, you will eventually crash into reality. If not in this life, then after death. And guess what happens when you crash into reality? Reality doesn't lose. Jesus will be Lord, whether you recognize it or not. And if you don't, crashing into reality is not gonna be pleasant. If you don't really believe that the meek will inherit the earth, crashing into reality is going to hurt. If you don't really believe that without love, you are nothing, crashing into reality is going to hurt. If you don't really believe that blessed are the poor in spirit, crashing into reality is going to hurt. And if you refuse to submit to Jesus and to his way of doing things, crashing into reality is going to hurt. And we're given a vision here, a scary vision of that hurt. Uh, it, it's frightening, and it, and it should be frightening, right? Verse 9 said, um, 
see if I can find it here. Uh, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. Yikes. Now, I do want to remind us, okay, this is a symbolic vision. So we have to be careful about taking it literally. If you really want to take it literally, you have to be consistent. You have to take all of it literally. And I don't actually know anyone who does that. You know, I know people who think that the mark of the beast is going to happen in the future and that it will literally be a mark on people's foreheads or hands. But I don't know anyone who thinks that the wicked will receive their judgment by literally drinking a cup of wine. So I think we should be consistent and either take all of it symbolically or take it all literally. So, and I choose to take it all symbolically. I think that's the spirit of the way that Revelation is written. Now, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the symbol of the mark of the beast. And I explained that I believe that the beast symbolizes the Roman Empire and for us, the spirit of empire uh, in every generation. And the mark is an indication that one worships the empire. Uh, and I explained a couple weeks ago that in those days, sometimes you needed certification indicating that you had worshiped the emperor, that you had participated in the imperial cult in order to buy or sell in the marketplace. So that's probably what John had in mind when he talked about the mark of the beast and needing the mark of the beast to buy and sell. So to receive the mark of the beast is to give our worship or our allegiance to anything other than God, especially if we're doing that in order to get money. We receive the mark of the beast when we worship power we receive the mark of the beast when we worship money. We receive the mark of the beast whenever we worship false gods, when we succumb to the spirit of empire. And what this vision is describing is what eventually happens when we receive the mark of the beast and we don't repent. When we do that, when we fail to recognize the truth, the eternal gospel, that Jesus is Lord, well, we can only deny that for so long until we crash into reality. And John describes that crash in really vivid language, right? They will be tormented. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. Uh, there will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image. Now, because this is a very symbolic vision, I want to caution us not to claim that we can know from this exactly what it's going to be like for those who refuse to repent for all of eternity. Okay, clearly it's not going to be good. We can say that confidently, right? But are they literally going to feel like they are burning forever in literal fire, writhing in agony for eternity? I just, I don't think it's wise for us to claim that we know that from this passage because it is such a symbolic passage. And the language is 
very figurative as well. And let me give let me give you you some evidence of that. Okay, that phrase "smoke rising forever and ever" that's used elsewhere in Scripture, and it's used in a non-literal way. Uh, one of the places it's used is in Isaiah chapter thirty-four, verses eight through ten. And in that Old Testament passage, Isaiah is prophesying about the destruction of Edom. And this is what he says. He says, Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. That sounds familiar, right? That's in our passage, burning sulfur. And he continues, her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. So there's that same kind of phrasing, right? The smoke will rise forever. Now, Edom was eventually destroyed, but if you go to where it is today, you're not going to see smoke rising from where it was. So in this case in Isaiah, that phrase, smoke rising forever, is not meant to be taken literally, but it's an idiom that describes a state of permanent destruction. Edom was destroyed, and it's not coming back. And the idiom that describes that is, is smoke rises forever and ever. So one possible interpretation of this passage in Revelation is that the unrepentance uh, will not burn forever in writhing agony, but they will eventually be destroyed, you know, like Edom was destroyed. Edom's smoke did not literally rise forever, but its destruction was permanent, right? Now, I'm not saying that you have to interpret this passage in Revelation in that way. The point I'm trying to make is just that we, we do need to be careful, okay? Careful to recognize the symbolic nature of this passage, the genre that it's written in, and, 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 and to recognize that we can't know from this exactly how God is going to uh, uh, handle the, the unrepentant for eternity. But one thing that we do know for sure is that the experience is not pleasant, to put it mildly, right? We can be certain of that. If we don't recognize Jesus as Lord, when we eventually crash into reality, it is not pleasant. And this is a passage that should strike fear in our hearts if we have not recognized Jesus as Lord or if we are caught up in the spirit of empire. This should really shake us to our core. But this is also a passage that should give us hope and peace because it assures us that even if right now it looks like Jesus is not really Lord, you know, because the wicked prosper and the, the world is kind of a mess, it's not always going to be that way. One day, things are going to be made right. One day, no one is going to be able to escape the glorious truth that Jesus really is Lord. Now, in the meantime, it's not easy. And John knows that, in the meantime, some Christians are going to be killed for their faith. And that's why the voice from heaven says in verse 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Death is not the end. And death does not separate us from the reality that Jesus is Lord. 
Actually, if anything, it brings us to that place where we crash into that reality. And so for those of us who recognize that Jesus is Lord, our death leads to our blessing. So this passage is scary, but it's also comforting. And I think we need to let it do both things to us. Both bring us fear and bring us comfort. Uh, We need to let it scare us into recognizing that Jesus is Lord. We need to let it scare us into turning from that spirit of empire that is at work in every age. We need to let it motivate us to encourage others to also recognize Jesus as Lord and turn from the spirit of empire. But we also need to let it encourage us. The true Lord of the world, the creator of all, is a humble, generous king, the one who's really in charge. And he will make things right. He will destroy evil forever. And he will vindicate those who love him and who have suffered for him. And he is able to save us from all evil, even death itself. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would use this passage, Lord. Use it both as a warning and as a a source of encouragement. Lord, you know, for each of us listening today, whether we more need to hear the warning or more need to hear the encouragement. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would guide us in whichever uh, one we need to hear more. Father, for any of us who are needing to hear the warning more, Lord, help us to recognize that it is futile to try and deny reality to turn from the truth, Lord. Lord, help us to recognize that Jesus is Lord, to receive that good news and to say, I know I've sinned, but I wanna be part of your kingdom. I don't wanna resist. Lord, I submit, I recognize you are Lord, Jesus is King. Help us to say that, Lord. And for those of us who are feeling burdened and fearful and anxious about the state of the world, Lord, help us to take comfort in knowing that you are the true king. You will make things right. We give you thanks and in Jesus' name, amen.